electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. hear about kids taking a gap year after high school? A gap year. It's, it's when they don't go straight to college, don't get a job, they do something else. Maybe travel to Europe or hike the Appalachian Trail. Gap years cost money, so mostly rich kids do them. For other people, they're called being unemployed or vagrancy. But for kids whose parents can afford it, well, a gap year can be a beautiful period of self-discovery. Or it can be a ticket to delay actually growing up. So what does this have to do with tech? Well, Uber just went public days ago after waiting a long time. Just kind of like finally starting college after that gap year. So how did the stock do? Terrible, like straight S the first semester. Priced at the low end of the range, trading 10% below that. I blame the parents. SoftBank and its $100 billion vision fund have been slinging billions of dollars around Silicon Valley like gap years after Andover, helping startups delay their IPOs. So the question today, is SoftBank spoiling those kids? Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I am John Fort from CNBC. Joining me today on Uber and SoftBank and gap years and more, Mike Isaac of the New York Times, also author of the book Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. You can pre-order that now and it drops in September, uh, I believe, Mike. So, is this, I'm gonna argue that this is SoftBank's fault. I mean, we, we got WeWork <laughs> coming, we, we've got uh, DoorDash, they've been given gap years by SoftBank and they're like, and Uber is just the wake up call. What do you think? No, I think that's totally right. I think, you know, we could talk about the past 10 years uh, that were really actually pretty comfortable for Travis uh, Kalanick as well, the previous CEO of Uber. Um, John, if you, you probably remember, Travis, I think, at one point said he just never wanted to take the company private or public at all <laughs> and was perfectly happy taking as much private capital as possible. And uh, they set basically new records in technology companies for the amount of money they raised privately, you know, from like... The early, I remember the early GV rounds where it was crazy that they raised 250 million and towards the end by the, the, the Saudis and SoftBank brought in multiple billions. So, But that's somebody's a, a, money, right? I mean, the, the only <laughs> way he was allowed to do that was the employees yeah. who he lured there with promises of future value, they were able to kind of cash out in the private markets ahead of time, which is relatively new for Silicon Valley, like past decade stuff. But the investors who were last in, they're maybe kind of skittish right now because the way the stock is trading in the public market, they've got like zero profit, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, you know, we've been working on a few different stories and ideas of like the winners and losers over the past week. And, uh, you know, the benchmarks of the world and the, the first rounds and Chris Sakas and all the very early folks, they did great, right? They're all, you know, they all did uh, huge billions in returns. But you look at the folks that did the last few rounds, SoftBank in particular at one of its uh, high valuations, the Saudis and the public investment fund mm -hmm. at the 68.5 billion. 
they're all basically underwater right now, if not, you know, at about right, right even, and are looking for, you know, the number on the street for a while before the before fri last Friday was 100, 120 billion dollars, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And now we're at half that, which is which is how far we have fallen. You know, that's a lot so, of a haircut. That's like that's like I, your haircut <laughs> and my haircut. That's like that's an extreme haircut. <laughs> and and that's the thing. Like I I wonder. The folks, folks are wondering now, you know, does that say how long we've been keeping uh, private companies private? And does that say about, like, uh, what this, this means for the heady valuations in the private markets? And are we going to start coming back down to earth? Is that specific to Uber in particular I mean, because of we, the insane I, valuation? Is, is the bank of mom and dad perhaps drying up? I mean, there's a story uh, out on WeWork. Uh, from Bloomberg Businessweek, kind of chronicling some of their issues months ago. Um, SoftBank mm. didn't fork over as much cash as WeWork wanted. I mean, I, I doubt that they're going to be giving more now after this Uber debut. Yeah, I think that's... Well, it's funny. SoftBank is, is and Masasan in particular, is just sort of this variable wild card <laughs> in the valley right now that no one can really understand. And that VCs that I talk to generally hate because it's messing up all the economics of, of how these are supposed to go, right? And mm -hmm. if, you're a, if you're a CEO of a private company and you can either go public and, and take a bunch of scrutiny from folks on the street or go to Masa and get a billion dollar injection of capital, like it's kind of probably an easy choice to make at this point, you know? But I, I do wonder, uh, to your point, you know, uh, after the debut of, of, of Uber, if that's going to start drying up. But that said, like, the Vision Fund uh, is a $100 billion fund. Masa wants to do more funds, and they yeah. have to spend that money somewhere. And you he kind of wanted to take the Vision Fund public. Um, you know, so all, all of this extra money push, pushing that then into the public market, I mean, it would seem to me like with, with Uber's debut, unless something turns around amazingly, unless we work comes out and just blows the doors, that, that's got to be off the table, right? I think that's right. I mean, part of, you know, my colleagues and I are working on this story of like the what happened with Uber. And I think part of the big problem that, um, that folks are starting to realize now is that a lot of the folks who would be buying into a company like Uber when it hits the public market we're already invested in Uber in the private markets, right? You know, Fidelity and like mutual funds, they were all buying Uber shares long ago before they even had to. So now, you know, it's a, it's a matter of, are you going to buy, re-up your stake at a higher price than you did before just because it's on the public markets? And that's a, that's a much harder sell. And I think that that might be the case for some of these other companies now. I mean, it, maybe, we've, maybe we've kind of hit the plateau. I mean, Chamath, social capital, that IPO, you know, that didn't go the way he said it was going to go, the way some people expected. Now the SoftBank thing in light of Uber, I mean, maybe the whole, uh, you know, VCs, you know, early investors going public thing, maybe that's iced for now. I think, yeah, I think we have to watch um, a few coming up. WeWork is obviously like this sort of uh, Uber was the bellwether, now WeWork is the next big thing to eye. I think we have to keep an eye on uh, things like uh, Slack at least, and then maybe Airbnb whenever that comes, because Airbnb is the next huge one that we're looking at. Um, and then, yeah, just like, I, I, I honestly am like, it's really gonna be like, what is the next 
IPO and how it performs, especially if it's losing a lot of money. So yeah. like WeWork is, we is work really is, the interesting one. WeWork is the one. We watch. We work. Now, moving on, <laughs> moving on to the subject of streaming. Disney now taking full operational control of Hulu, effective immediately after a deal with CNBC and NBC Universal's parent Comcast, which basically uh, gives Comcast a pretty nice valuation, more than $20 billion uh, on its stake in Hulu, um, at least on Hulu overall. It has a, uh, a third of that and a floor on how much uh, they can be diluted if, you know, uh, if Disney pours a lot more money into building Hulu, Comcast decides they don't want to fork over that much. The most they can be diluted down, the most their, their stake is going to go down to is 21%. So, you know, on paper, it looks like a pretty nice deal for Comcast financially, but this does a lot for Disney as far as what they can do in their streaming strategy, tying Hulu into Disney Plus and ESPN Plus and kind of single sign-on and all of that. I mean, yeah. this, this puts Disney in an incredible position, doesn't it? I, you know, it's funny because I've been sort of watching everyone sort of position their streaming platforms for the, the next few years coming up. And, and I've been wondering, you know, like a lot of folks are starting from behind. Netflix has a huge head start. Uh, Hulu, uh, obviously, in there. And I sort of wondered, I, I was actually, if Disney, if any company could do it, it would be Disney. But I, I was a little bit skeptical just because they're doing like a cold start. But I think this gives them a little bit more, or a lot more firepower than they would have before. You know, they have the content, they have the install base and subscriber base now with Hulu and then ESPN, and and, and I just think that they have a much better shot of, of like coming out of the gate really strong, you know, it's, here, especially with what they have. It's, it's like when the Golden State Warriors picked up Kevin Durant. I mean, it's, <laughs> right. sure, sure, Netflix is, is LeBron, and Cleveland, and oh, <laughs> amazing. But now, I mean, what, what Disney's got is just, it, it's, it's really powerful. Now, there could be injuries. Who knows? Bob, I won't be there forever. <laughs> Avengers is over. But they just have an incredible amount of momentum. And I got to wonder, are we going to be back here a couple years from now saying Comcast made a mistake? They just, they allowed mm. Disney uh, so much running room early on. They could have messed with them, you know, kept that international strategy, dangled it uh, in front of them for a couple of years rather than letting them just go. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great question. And, and I, I think a lot of it, you know, you see Netflix over the past few years sort of building up its original content stuff and, and seeing the tea leaves of folks starting to, to split off what they're going to allow across these services. And and I really wonder what the original content lineups are going to be for some of these non-Disney, non-Hulu uh, companies, right, that, that want to attract folks to their own offerings. Because it's really just about the stuff that you have, you know, and then people will go to, to whoever has it. So that Disney, that's where at least Disney has a lot of the strength because they have two, if not three, of the hugest franchises in the world right now. And I wonder, I wonder if Netflix eventually hits some potholes. I mean, people forget while something is hot that it can ever be cold. I mean, it seems, I'm not a Game of Thrones guy, but you know, people crazy about Game of Thrones. It seems like the last couple of episodes, some people have cooled off yeah. on Game of Thrones. And then remember Lost? I mean, we were excited about Lost for a couple yeah. seasons, and then we realized that <laughs> Lost was really the state of the writer's thinking after that first season. They were just making stuff up. I don't know. We'll see if Netflix can stick it out. Now, 
it's time to get those digits. Here are a few numbers that caught my eye this week. Siri's got the first. Siri. $153.86. $153.86. That would be a 14% increase on the price of Apple's most expensive iPhone, the 10s Max. That's what JP Morgan says Apple would need to do to offset the cost of tariffs, is hike the price that much. Mike, people are already complaining about the more than $1,000 phone. How much would it chill the wallets of Americans to have to pay that much more for an iPhone? Oh my God. I mean, it's a really hard problem because, like, on the one hand, if you remember a few years ago when Apple started going down market to, uh, to, 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 to try to capture some of the lower end uh, customers, uh, it didn't do as well, you know, and it had this sort of like premium uh, phone that everyone sort of wants to go after. But I do wonder what the limit for people is. Are they going to start paying like twelve, fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars for their mm -hmm. next phone? And a lot of the technologists out there sort of explain it as, look, you know, think of the uh, the device that you use every single day, the most of, uh, uh, out of your day, even more than your computer the smartphone is going to be it. So you could probably rationalize it, but there have to be limits on some of this. You can if you want. I'll tell you what. I, I loved the idea of the iPhone 10, and I said people will buy it, 1000 bucks, whatever. I got one, but then I realized, hey, I didn't like Face ID. The OLED was straining my eyes. I downgraded to an 8. That's what I'm using now. I mean, I, I think that's really? the danger for You don't for like Apple. Face ID? I don't like Face ID because... Because I'm one of those guys, my, my phone is my alarm clock. I got it right. I use it mm. while I'm typing. I don't want to have to like lean over and look at my phone or <laughs> open it up. Just use my finger, look over, get it done. You know, I don't like staring my phone in the face all the time. No, no, thank you. I'm it makes, sticking. It makes paying, it makes Apple pay really awkward sometimes yeah. if I'm like sticking my head in the cash register. Exactly. I hate that. I hate that. Just thumb. That's, that's <laughs> good enough. All right. Second digit. Siri, give it to us. $10,000. $10,000. That's how much Amazon is paying its workers to quit. Not just quit, but quit and start their own shipping businesses where they lease the trucks from Amazon. They've got Amazon signage on the sides, uniforms, all sorts of technology. But Mike, it's interesting. Just as Amazon is trying to ramp up its shipping efforts, it doesn't have the people to really do it. So it's trying to repurpose its existing workforce into a contract workforce. It's like big, weird things about labor and dynamics happening there. <laughs> it's really interesting on, on what that says about Amazon's marketplace sellers and like where a lot of its uh, business is coming from, I guess. You know? like, I, I, it, it, and it's funny to imagine what the implications for the future of work are how they think about their own workforce, you know, especially as tech workers now more than ever are, are starting to form like quasi unions and, mm -hmm. and, and want more sort of labor rights. It's really fascinating to see this sort of awakening of folks who normally espouse free market economics to start you know, moving towards like labor <laughs> rights practices inside of the tech industry. So it's, it's a trip. We've come full circle in a lot of ways. Here's the part that's weird to me, Mike, is that these are some of the same people, let's say it's warehouse workers, who are inside the building picking things off of shelves, packing them in boxes, then they're employees, yeah. right? But then when they go outside, Amazon's saying, no, you know, inside, okay, we've got enough people inside. We want you to go outside, 
get in a car with the same box with stuff in it, deliver it to somebody's house, but then not be an employee. We don't want you to be on the payroll. We want you to be a contractor in a whole different model. What's the big difference between being in the building, putting stuff in the box, and being outside the building, yeah. delivering the box? Somehow for Amazon, like two totally different things. Oh my God. I imagine it's liability and like some nebulous version of what what they think an employee should be. They're really stretching the boundaries of what employment actually means these days, you know? And, and, and I think they're trying to have their cake and, cake and eat it too. It's kind of like how Uber wants to, you know, completely like minimize its, prop, uh, minimize its uh, uh, expenses and costs on labor while sort of maximizing its margins. I think Amazon is the king of doing that and trying to figure out new ways to do that. So this is sort of like a tricky way of doing that. I don't know if anyone's going to actually buy it or go for it or if they're going to run into trouble for it. Seems like a lot of people, um, maybe not existing Amazon employees, but a lot of people have been jumping on that shipping business bandwagon. We'll see if they can make money. And final digit, Siri, yeah. related. $800 million. $800 million. That is how much Amazon, again, is going to spend this quarter alone to get its one-day shipping efforts off the ground, and of course, nipping at its heels, Amazon, uh, Walmart, sorry, saying that it too is ramping up one-day shipping efforts, just a couple of cities to start, but they're saying, hey, you don't have to pay this annual membership fee, we're gonna do one-day shipping too. Mike, I've said this before, but at a certain point, there's like a diminishing marginal return for how fast you can get that package <laughs> to me. Like, two, two days is good. Like. I, mouthwash, two days is good. Like, I don't wait until my breath stanks to order mouthwash. <laughs> I don't need it, like, in two hours. So I, th they're spending all this money to get it one day faster. Is it really going to be worth it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like, where, where do customers sort of stop caring, you know, anymore? I think the two days, I think we've also been, like, conditioned to wait two days at this point, and we can sort of, like, figure out what we're going to buy on Amazon that will take two days to get to us. The interesting thing I wonder is like if this starts changing shopping habits, you know, if I know that I can get something in one day or even less than one day at some point, does that mean I'm going to start buying different things from Amazon? Does that mean they'll convert more people over to Prime Pantry or some other different sectors of their business? So a lot of what I think about is like, how their logistics processes change the, the shopping habits of people yeah. over time. So maybe, maybe that's the incremental value. Because how absent-minded do you have to be to need everything <laughs> the next day? Like, even, even in the old days when we actually drove to stores, I used to think a couple of days in advance about what I needed from the store. I didn't, yeah. like, just jump yeah. in the car and go to the store and then show up and be like, okay, is there anything here I need? I mean, it, it, we're getting beyond the point, I think, of simulating actual life. All right, well, anyway, enough of that. <laughs> Finally, it is time for Hard Knocks, taking a look at some of this week's harshest hot takes in tech. First up, the Supreme Court coming down on the side of plaintiffs versus Apple, allowing some users to file lawsuits on what they say is the anti-competitive nature of Apple's App Store. And this is an argument that's been going on for years, Mike. This group of plaintiffs says, hey, prices on the App Store are too high because Apple's taking this 30% cut of everything. If they allowed us to just buy our apps from anybody on an open market, they'd be cheaper. Apple says, wait a minute, a lot of these apps are free, plus we got to keep the App Store safe. You don't want a virus, do you? Um, but tough, 
a little bit of a, a tough one for Apple here. I mean, this is a this is a really hard case. Again, I, I was reading some stuff, and it's going to be years from now before this is actually settled, before they can like sort of decide the fate here. But I mean, think about Apple's iPhone business and how those margins are starting to look tougher, how those sales are going down, and how services are really the future of this company. The App Store is clearly a very large part of that. They also they've made some acquisitions over the years uh, to to sort of beef up their own app store offerings. Uh, they have like in-store in app sales ads now, similar mm -hmm. to what Facebook has done over the years. Like, and they're trying to get incremental revenue there. So look, if you're, if you're messing with what is the core of Apple's business, or at least its software business, it's not good, right? And then Google has to be looking at this and wondering, you know, if, if they're next or if they're gonna if they're gonna be in trouble here too. And and you know, app stores. If you control an app store, you do control a lot of power. So I take the opposite uh, the opposite tack in mind. Uh, but it's got to shake Apple up a little bit. Of all the app store arguments out there, though, I think this consumer argument, personally, I think, is the weakest. The, mm -hmm. the whole it's a monopoly. You're making me buy. Like if you if you want um, Facebook as an app, you can get it on an iPhone, you can get it on an Android phone, you can get it on a PC, like you can get Facebook lots of different places, same for like Shopify yeah. and all these other, you know, things that you have to pay for, you know, Amazon stuff, eBooks, you can buy those lots of different places. So the, the idea that it's a monopoly because I chose to get an iPhone and I'm deciding to buy it through the app store on this iPhone, I don't buy that as much as I buy, say, Spotify's argument, hey, you, Apple, mm. you, you, you want to take this huge cut we don't want to give you this cut, and you're competing against us in the same arena with a financial advantage. That legally makes more sense to me. I'm not a lawyer, but it makes more sense to me. No, I think you're right, and I, I think that um, you know, even moving over to discussions about Facebook and the FTC and sort of uh, anti-competitive arguments right now, you know, a lot of FTC law is based on proving consumer harm at this mm -hmm. point, right? Mm -hmm. And you would be really hard pressed, uh, at least, to prove that Apple is 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 unduly harming consumers in the way they present things. Like, do they have a, an ability to curate and present things? Absolutely. But, you know, one could argue that I, I like the App Store and want to go to the App Store to find the, the, the things that I'm looking for quickly and easily and get out of and get out as quickly and easily. And, and until folks, at least as far as FTC sort of action goes, until folks are able to prove that you're doing harm to the public, uh, it's going to be a really hard argument to make. Yeah, particularly when it comes to antitrust. Point taken. And lastly, all right, I debated even doing this one, but we got to talk about Elon Musk's <laughs> Twitter game. Okay, so they compete, <laughs> they compete in space, right? Elon Musk has his thing, you know, SpaceX. Uh, Jeff Bezos has his thing, Blue Origin. So after Bezos announced Blue Origin's latest space in initiative, Musk photoshopped Bezos's rocket to read, instead of Blue Origin, Blue Balls. And you see the shape of the- Oh my right, God. Ball, along with the caption, Oh, stop teasing, Jeff. Okay, so so this is not a <laughs> knock on Bezos, I don't think. This is Elon Musk. There's something wrong with this he dude. He can't help I himself. Mean, it, he can't I mean, help himself. In so many ways, it's like the guy's head. Part of it is like way beyond postdoctoral. Part of it is firmly <laughs> rooted in junior high. I mean, uh, yep. Mike. Mike. No, I think it, Mike, I think Mike, you're. Mike, Mike, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I th well, I think that's exactly why people, or at least 
his very fervent crowd of admirers seem to love him, right? Like he has the humor of a Redditor mixed with like Tony Stark, right? So, you know, if you, if you are essentially a person of the internet, like he seems to be, but also, uh, you know, have billions to play with, have crazy aspirational goals, like changing the world, uh, fixing climate change and, and landing on Mars, you know, there's there's going to be this sort of cult of personality around him. And I think he honestly feeds off of that. You know, he yeah. definitely loves all of his Twitter acolytes sort of cheering him on and, and being a kind of billionaire troll online. So, you know, it's funny. I wonder if 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 it's going to take more than the SEC to smack him down and get him to stop at some point. You yeah, know? Now he's on an innuendo kick. Like a after the SEC <laughs> said no, twi no, no tweeting about actual material stuff about your company, he started tweeting about, you know, stories about people doing risque things in Ubers, making allusions to that, <laughs> the blue balls. I don't know. Um, but, but you're right. This is classic Robert Downey Jr. playing Tony Stark. Like, this is, this is what he would do in the movie. When, when I see Robert Downey Jr. doing Tony Stark, I see Larry Ellison and Elon Musk. That's, that's got to be his inspiration. I mean, that's it. And I think these guys, you know, one could argue that the pushing the boundaries and and uh, being willing to at least bend, if not break the rules, is part of why these guys are so successful in the first place. So, you know, I just wonder if if hubris takes someone too far at some point. And you know, he almost got taken out by, by the 420 weed tweet a while ago. So, like, you know, what is it going to be this time? That and given the number of breakups that Elon Musk has had, maybe he just has. Anyway, um, that, <laughs> that'll do it for Fort Knox. Mike Isaac, thank you so much for being with us. Everybody, great to have you. See you next Thanks, time. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.